Welcome to A Higher Branch, a source of practical and powerful information for busy people dedicated to boosting their personal health and professional performance. I'm your host, Sam McCall. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of A Higher Branch. Today, I'm joined by one of Australia's leading digital parenting educators and researchers, Dr. Christy Goodwin. Now, Dr. Christy is also the author of Raising Your Child in a Digital World, which is a book that I haven't read yet, but I'm dying to get my hands on. And perhaps once I've read that, we can also have Dr. Christy back on the podcast again to dive deeper into some of the topics that we're going to cover today. Dr. Christie's also spent years educating parents, business owners, and government agencies about the effects that digital has on our physical health, mental well-being, mental and emotional well-being, I might add, and obviously the productivity of our employees. And today, she joins me to discuss how parenting has changed over the years due to digital disruption. And we're going to be also talking about things like online learning and how that's impacted our children's ability to learn and the true impact that digital consumption versus digital creation. And I want to talk about that because I think it's consumption whether it's overconsumption of food or overconsumption of digital, that is really what the issue here is. It's not so much digital. I think it's the con- how we consume the digital. And we're going to also talk about uh, you know, how screen time is unhealthy, not just for our children, because a lot of people that are listening now are probably just as guilty as their children. I have a brother who sits there telling his kids, shouting at his kids, get off your phone. And he's you know, sitting on there with uh, Instagram. So look, this uh, episode is going to be truly insightful and is going to give you a lot of practical tips on how to guide your children, but also yourselves. And on that note, Dr. Christie, welcome to A High Branch. Great to be here, Sam. Thank you for the lovely introduction. I think none of us, as you described in the introduction, none of us are immune to the digital pool, whether you've got a three-year-old or a screenager, you know, a, a teenager who's has their digital appendage, or you're an adult yourself. We all have become infatuated with our digital devices. Absolutely, yeah. And I find myself, I'm well-read, highly experienced, and I find that it is so difficult that the magnetic pull of the phone, social media, Netflix, whatever it may be. And I find that magnetic pull happens most when we have these times in the day where we have nothing to do. So it's these little segues between, say, typically what might happen when you finish work, you drive home and you get home and you take off your clothes and you think, okay, what do I do now? Dinner isn't for another hour or it's these segues. That's when we might get lost. And I now use those as a trigger to do something else. I say, well, Sam, you're lost now. Don't reach for your phone. Don't reach for the remote. Do something else. I want to kick off this podcast by asking you, does digital have benefits as well? I I know a lot of people listening now are going to say, well, is this another podcast on the evils of, you know, the digital world? And I want to get to some of those evils, right? But also, are there benefits? Absolutely. And I'm so pleased we're kicking off with the positive. And I think especially when we're talking about children and adolescents and screen time, 
our natural tendency is to demonize it because as adults, we've got no frame of reference when it comes to navigating the digital landscape with young people. For most of us, our childhood was analog. I don't know about you, Sam, but I spent my childhood staring at the sky, not at a screen. I spent time with people, not with pixels. But today for parents, that digital landscape has completely changed what childhood and also what parenthood looks like. And this is the very first time in history where a generation of young people, even toddlers sometimes, know more about a topic than what their parents do. And so the parenting dynamic has shifted. And so our tendency as humans, and this has always happened when any new technology, you know, be it rock and roll music or the printing press was introduced, our natural tendency as humans was to panic. We always had this moral panic. And so I want to start by saying, yes, this moral panic that we do have is considered normal or typical, but I also love that we're going to focus on some of the positive potentials. And I think the recent pandemic um, has highlighted that, you know, I couldn't have imagined trying to do remote working without digital technologies. I think we've recognised that the online world is a portal for us. It's a portal for work. It's a portal for leisure. It's a portal for connection and collaboration, be that with colleagues or family and friends. So there are definitely rich potentials. And I also liked in your introduction, you made the very clear line of demarcation between are we consuming or are we creating? And I think we really need to have more nuanced conversations rather than just talking about screen time in a generic way. We need to start to drill down in what are we doing with our time online? Is it fulfilling our psychological needs? Is it displacing basic physical and or psychological needs? So, yes, there are definitely positive potentials, both for children, um, adolescents. Unfortunately, the popular media doesn't like to promote these. We only ever hear the negative stories about the adverse impacts of screen time because... Ironically, it makes for good clickbait. But the positive stories, and I'm here to say as a researcher in this field, there is definitely positive potential for both children, adolescents and adults if what we're doing is intentional and if it isn't displacing some of our basic needs. So can we go back a step then and define what is digital? Is it laptop? Is it uh, TV? Is it uh, a phone? Is it just screens or is it what we're doing on those screens? Is it Zoom itself or is it social media? So when you say the the benefits of a digital world, let's define what digital is. Yes, and I think you've highlighted here one of the real problems that we're facing given that technology is growing and evolving at such exponential rates. So screens in the foreseeable future are actually probably going to become obsolete or they're going to become less important. You know, we've now got wearable technologies, we've got artificial intelligence, we've got virtual reality, and they all fit within that digital realm. And that's why I often say the the notion of screen time, particularly that's our narrow definition when we've talked particularly about children and adolescents. We, yeah. you know, often obsessed with quantifying how much time they're having on devices. And usually the digital world means, as you said, laptops, desktop computers, tablets, smartphones, gaming consoles, good old-fashioned TV, if you've still got a DVD player or a Blu-ray player, the whole plethora. And so that's where we have problematic conversations around screen time because what I might do on my laptop, be that if I'm a student, educational activities, or on my smartphone where I'm, you know, mindlessly watching silly YouTube clips of other people playing video games, they're 
qualitatively different experiences, yet we lump them under the one umbrella of screen time. And so that's where I was suggesting earlier, we need to have more nuanced conversations and drill down into, well, what are we actually doing? Is it active? Is it passive? Is it leisure? Is it learning? Is it age appropriate, especially if we're talking about young people? So I think that's really important. You know, digital encompasses a whole range of different things. And that's where I think we need to be more specific about what it is that we're doing online. Yeah, because sitting and watching Netflix all day, binge watching, that's digital, right? Absolutely. It's not that digital is bad, it's how we use it. So you mentioned between passive and active. So playing video games, for example, I've heard is really good for your Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. So that's that distinction. And again, with, even with social media, are you just a passive consumer? Are you sitting there just scrolling? And I often call it going down the trap of the compare and despair phenomenon. Do you look at your current reality and compare the A-roll, highlight reel, highly edited, curated footage that other people are sharing and embark on that compare and despair? That's very different to you using social media to connect. Perhaps it's with colleagues or family members or friends and using it as a platform to fulfill one of our most basic human drivers and one of the reasons that technology has become so um, omnipresent and so incredibly popular is that it taps into our most basic psychological driver and that is our need for relational connection or are we using social media to actually create content are we using it to share a message or to voice our opinion or to seek clarification or to use it to educate and, and impart knowledge with others so again even different devices or platforms have different purposes contingent upon how we're using them. Yes. So we're on a digital platform now, and this is what you would define as a positive use of digital technology. Absolutely. I couldn't imagine trying to do a podcast without particularly, we, we, I know this will be an audio recording, but we can actually see each other. And I know that for me, being able to see you face to face is having a much more personalised, contextualised conversation than what it would have been had we just picked up the phone. And so that's where I often encourage people to tap into what need do you need the technology to fulfil, be that a functional need or is it a psychological need? And then that's why I say we have to be masters of the media and not the other way around where I think many of us are trapped and that is a slave to the screen. You know, are are we using the technology or is the technology using us? And I think when we're deliberate, when we use it appropriately, it can definitely be beneficial. Absolutely. Now, most people listening to this know our framework. One of our frameworks or operating systems for life is the eight areas of life which fill eight fundamental human needs and that is a tree of health, a tree of love, the tree of family, the tree of work, the tree of friendship, the tree of learning, the tree of wealth, and the tree of charity. And each one of those fulfills the fundamental human need. Uh, Number one, for health, it's energy. For love, it's intimacy, physical and emotional. Family, it's unconditional love and support. Work, it's for fulfillment and purpose. Friendships, for belonging. Learning, for growth. Wealth, for freedom. And charity, for contribution. Now, digital has really helped us fulfill each of those human needs in a very profound way. So if you look at our health, for example, I was in New York last year and the big craze there is something called Peloton. This is where you're using digital actively. So Pelotons, you're either on a treadmill or or on a bike and you're with others in a virtual world, right? Cycling the Tour de France. Now, how amazing is the use of digital in that sense? So when it comes to health and well-being, there's so many, you know, that's one example. When it comes to love and intimacy, 
how much more connected are we now? Like we used to have to meet a boyfriend or a girlfriend, you know, at the church on Sundays or the local disco. But now you can just swipe, right, to meet people. <laughs> so that's another, you know, benefit of digital technology. It makes it easier for us to connect with family. You connect families throughout the world. You know, I have family from all over the world because I was originally born in Beirut. And because of the civil war, we all scattered. Now, because of digital technology, we're able to connect and share photos. and It brings a family together. You know, with work, we talked about Zoom being able to help us. We have computers and digital technology now that makes us work on the things that light us up rather than on mundane, repetitive things. But obviously, you have a lot more examples as well, Christy, or maybe have comment on any of those things that I just mentioned. I do. And I completely and wholeheartedly agree that technology can be a brilliant tool to enable us to fulfill all of those basic needs that we have as humans, be that physical or, and or psychological needs. Again, if we're intentional and deliberate around how we use them. But I'm also going to suggest because of the, the way technology meets our psychological needs in particular, and because of some very persuasive design techniques, often we are oblivious to the potential disruptive nature that technology can have. So one of the ones that I'm hearing firsthand from a range of people, professionals, health professionals in particular, educators and families, is that technology can connect us, but if we're not careful, it can also disconnect us. We can be together physically, but yeah. alone if we're all sitting there on devices. And again, because of these, you know, I mentioned before, technology has been designed to tap into that fundamental need for relational connection. This is why social media, this is why multiplayer video games, this is why for us as adults is so compelling and appealing because we are hardwired to be part of a tribe. We want to connect. We don't want to be socially ostracised. We also know that technology taps into our need for competence and control. The online world, you know, we have a very artificial sense that we have some locus, strong locus of control over our life. I mean, I use this word very loosely when we choose what we watch next on Netflix. And we know that choice is often determined by algorithms. And so that factor coupled with the fact that you know some very sneaky design techniques often makes it really hard I think you talked at the beginning Sam about how you find it hard you know not to reach for your phone in those pockets of downtime and again some deliberate choices one of the things we know is that when we use technology particularly social media platforms and, and communication tools we enter something I call the state of insufficiency there's never ever a finite point where you are done and complete. It's the infinite pool or, or the bottomless bowl analogy. And so we never have that sense of being done. So there's always another email I can read. There's always another social media post I can look at. The second thing I think is the use of intermittent variable rewards, particularly social media platforms and games use an unpredictable reward ratio. So you never know when you'll get an interesting email, your son or daughter, if they're playing video games, never know if they're going to win a battle or win some ammunition. And it's that unpredictable reward ratio that gets us hooked. We also know that tech companies often, you know, exploit these features. So I think there can absolutely be positive potentials, but there are also some hard things we're fighting against, particularly when we know our needs and some design principles have made these technologies very sticky and very frictionless. And so that's why it's sometimes hard for us to reconcile some of those challenges we face. Absolutely. I'm getting a sense then of where we should take this conversation because it's a very powerful tool when used 
properly can actually improve humanity, but it's also a tool that is designed for addiction. And my suggestion is that we're no match for that <laughs> addictive qualities of it. So people can go away feeling after listening to this that, okay, after listening to Dr. Christie, I think you know, technology is highly beneficial, but it's like cigarette smoking, isn't it? I mean, cigarette smoking at one stage, you know, they started putting all these highly addictive substances added to the tobacco. And then those cigarette companies did not have to disclose what they put in there because they said, well, it's a patent and we don't want to disclose trade secrets under intellectual property law, they were protected. But of course, what they were putting in there were highly addictive substances to the point where, you know, before those substances came along, smoking one cigarette a day was considered healthy. And some research shows that a little bit of nicotine actually prevents people from getting Alzheimer's and those sorts of things. But it's a double-edged sword, right? And uh, this is where I think that's a really good analogy for where we're going with digital because I can't think of anyone that I've met that just knows how to use that technology in a healthy way without destroying their health, their vision, their relationships. You know, I interviewed Dr. Jen Mann on this podcast and said people have stopped having sex because as soon as they wake up, they actually reach for their phones instead of reaching for each other, right? And when it comes to the area of family, families are not connecting anymore like you said and uh, i met a new person earlier and we were talking about the same sub subject uh, in fact i said i was interviewing dr christy goodwin uh, on this topic and what do you think and she said to me she's a millennial and she said well as soon as i pick up my phone sometimes my fingers will guide my brain to exactly where it wants to go without me even thinking about it and this is one intelligent young lady who's well read and knows a lot of about what we're talking about, but she's describing how the muscle memory in her fingers go automatically to social media on her phone. So what hope do we have? So can I just help to make your colleague who you were just speaking about feel a little bit better as to why she was feeling that digital pull? You know, when Steve Jobs released the first iPod Touch in a press statement, he said that he wanted to make the icons on the iPod so psychologically appealing that users wanted to lick their phones. So everything down to the deliberate choice of colours that make the icons really appealing. So really simple strategy there if you want to resist the tech temptations on your phone is to turn your phone to grayscale. It doesn't matter if you've got an iOS or an Android device, you can actually set the default setting to grayscale and your phone, I'm here to vouch that Instagram is nowhere near as exciting in black and white than what it is in colour. Another deliberate design technique, um, again, that gets us trapped into, you know, our thumb just gravitating towards the, the icon that we don't want to open is yeah. because it's the use of the red notification bubble and the use of metrics. When you see you've got 72 notifications on Snapchat or on email, that red is a psychological trigger and the number is a really quantifiable measure of either what you haven't done or what you have to do. And we get little hits of dopamine when we plough through and I go from having, you know, 72 unread emails just to two or three. So there's a whole host of things, as you said, working against us. So what can we do? You know, I'm not about digital amputation. I'm a huge lover of technology and I couldn't live without it. So I've created four pillars for digital wellbeing. And I think they tie in nicely to your framework too, Sam. So the first one is that we need to create digital borders and boundaries. Given that these technologies are so captivating and alluring, we have to have boundaries. And this 
works whether you're a parent or an adult. Boundaries around what we do, when, where are your no-go tech times in the day. I strongly encourage bookending your day without your screen. As you said, 90% of adults reach for their phone before their partner now. And what we do is activate our sympathetic nervous system. When we open our phone, when we first woken up and we check social media or we check news sites or we check our inboxes, we actually trigger that fight, flight or flee response and our feet haven't even got out of the bed and hit the ground yet. Equally, bookending our day at the end of the day with our screen has a really negative impact on both the quality and quantity of our sleep. So establishing those borders and boundaries around what, when, where, um, how, and especially now some of us are working remotely, where are your no-go tech zones? Where are the spaces and places in your house that are sort of your tech-free zones? After we've established borders and boundaries, the next pillar for digital well-being, I believe, is what I call applying neuroproductivity hacks. As a neuroscientist, I'm here to tell you we know more about the human brain than we ever have in history. So we need to apply our knowledge of the brain and how it works in this digitalized context so that we can be productive. One of the key things I talk about is nibbling on your inbox throughout the day is one of the worst ways to put a dent in your productivity. Mapping your workday to your prime times, I talk about your chronotype, so your biological predisposition position to be awake and alert, mapping your time. So if you've got some control over your work day, mapping your day so you can get the focused, deep work that you need to do when you're at your mental peak. And so being strategic with that. And now, given that we've often got distributed teams that we have often more control over. The third pillar of digital well-being, and it relates to the previous one, is that we have to disable digital distractions. When we need to do deep focused work, we cannot, even if we have the best of intentions, even if we do have really good willpower, often we may not open the email. You know, often we have the ding that slides across the right-hand corner of our screen or a Slack notification or a team notification. Even if we resist the temptation to open it, our attention has often been diverted. And a study was done and they, they found that the average adult takes 23 minutes and 15 seconds to reorient their attention after any distraction. So if you're in a deep focus state and maybe it's a colleague that comes and interrupts you or it's a, a social media ping or ding, it's really time consuming to reorient your attention. So when particularly our mental prime time of the day, we really need to put a fortress around our focus. That's the time of the day where we have to be really stringent and turn off notifications. Flicking, I often say the basics work if you work the basics turning your phone to do not disturb mode, not for the entire day, but when you need to do that deep focused work. Now with most phones um, and operating systems, you can actually personalize that do not disturb setting. So I know a lot of people say, but you know, what if I've got a sick parent? What if my children's school or preschool needs to reach me or my EA needs to reach me? I do need to be contactable. You can actually set rules up so that key people or key numbers can penetrate that barrier. You can set up an auto reply, a text message, so that if you're in that do not disturb mode, people get an automated response with a clear plan of action as to who they can contact. So I think being deliberate around that focus time and the fourth pillar of digital well-being, and I think this one's the most important, I will also admit I find this one the hardest to do, and that is digital disconnection. We have ancient Paleolithic brains that were never designed to be switched on processing information 24-7. We need opportunities to unplug, literally to disconnect. I don't know about you, Sam, but when I used to fly, I often had my best ideas when I was in a plane or when you go running or swimming or go for a walk or wake up early in the morning and we enter what we call the mind-wandering mode or the default mode of thinking. 
we don't get that exactly what you're talking about in the, in the beginning when we are constantly scrolling through our devices or being distracted in those moments of white space we used to have. So the four pillars, again, the first one are borders and boundaries. The second one is neuroproductivity hacks. The third one is disabling digital distractions. And the fourth one is digital disconnection. That's how I think we can get on top of this and thrive in this digital landscape without having to give up our devices or our laptops. Now, awesome. Now, a lot of people would have heard each one of those four pillars, but I just want to take the opportunity now, where can people find you on your website? Can you tell us what the website address is? Sure. It's drchristygoodwin.com and there's a whole range. Ironically, I have a website and I'm quite active on social media, but I know that's where people are also spending lots of their time. So I'm trying to cultivate healthy bite-sized bits of information. I'm on those platforms too. Yeah. So it's Christy with a K. K yes. And a Y. And uh, so it's the same handle for Instagram and Facebook. Correct. Dr. Good one. Excellent. That's really good. Just thought I'd raise it. I don't want to forget later. Okay. Can I tell you why you might forget, sorry to interrupt. We know our memory making capacity is changing rapidly. I'm the first to admit I have digital dementia. What we're often doing now is offloading some of our memory making capacity to technology. And I think this is, again, both a positive and a negative thing. You know, is my life enriched by knowing a whole multitude of phone numbers and birth dates or calendar appointments? Probably not. That's the sort of thing that is probably worthwhile offloading. But are we offloading some of the really important things that we should be committing to memory? Or And this is the thing I think is our biggest threat to families and to, to both personal and interpersonal relationships is that these devices that we have all become dependent on can rob us of our two most important human resources, our time and our attention. Are we missing those little micro moments of connection with our kids? You know, when your child finally nails the tumble turn at swimming lessons and they look up at you and they got their cap off and their goggles are filled with water and they give you the thumbs up and your attention is on the screen, not on them. Are we missing those those micro <laughs> guilty as well? But you know, I hate when I see it at the playground. Yeah, and it does. And interestingly, on the playground, there has been in my book. Um, I interviewed paediatricians, and there in recent years has been a real surge in playground injuries amongst children. Now, this is anecdotal evidence at this point in time, but what they're hearing is that it two things: one, kids are spending less time outdoors; they're spending more time on screens. So their physical skills, their proprioception, and they're basically their capacity to function on equipment is impaired somewhat because they're not spending as much time hanging upside down and crawling and rolling and tumbling. But the second theory is digital distraction, parental digital distraction, parents who are not supervising their kids because their attention has been diverted. I see that a lot when I'm jogging past playgrounds or cycling or whatever. I see kids playing. And inevitably, you know, 90% of the times it's the the mums. And I'm not being sexist here, but it's the mothers that are on their phone because I think uh, it's statistically a fact that a lot more women on social media than men. And that really saddens me. So I want to talk a little bit more then about the impact of digital on parents. I love the four pillars. And in particular, I think the one that's had the biggest impact for me is bookending my day with zero technology the first hour and the last hour for me is a no-go zone for technology of any form and uh, that's helped me in the bedroom and that's helped me in the boardroom (laughs) 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 because it seems to me that what happens to us in the first hour and the last hour has the biggest impact 
One, the first hour has the biggest impact on my performance throughout the day. And the last hour has the biggest impact on my sleep performance. And I measure my sleep performance through this aura ring that I wear. I measure my sleep data to see if I'm getting enough deep sleep, REM sleep, and I can tell from the next day. Now, inevitably, when I've been on technology late at night, just before I go to sleep, my sleep performance is terrible. And that gives me brain fog the next morning. And then most people are caught in this vicious loop. So that tip you gave on bookending is incredible. And all those other ones that people did, make sure you go back if you're listening to this and have a listen to this podcast again and just write everything down that Dr. Chrissy just mentioned. And please visit her website. I can't stress how important this topic is. It's probably the most negative thing in our lives at the moment. I mean, I, I say to people, you can eat unhealthy, don't exercise, but by any means control your addictions to technology because <laughs> that's having a, a far worse impact on your health and your emotional well-being than a poor diet and exercise. So let's look at then children and how to raise children. This is a, a, a specialist area for you, how to raise children in a digitally focused world. How much screen time is healthy and how much screen time is dangerous? <laughs> for yes. children and, and does it depend on their age as well i mean i picked up uh, a toddler the other day uh, you know one of my cousins and i had him you know in my arms and he was facing my chest and i had an emblem on the, the top that i was wearing and he was doing this with his fingers trying to zoom in on the emblem it's like and <laughs> children are having trouble distinguishing between the real world <laughs> the analog world and the digital world so how much screen time is healthy? Is there a figure? Look, this is the million dollar question. This is the most frequently asked question I'm asked by parents. And we do have Australian government guidelines. In fact, most countries in the developed world do have guidelines around screen time and they're fairly consistent across different nations. In Australia, our current guidelines are for no screen time for zero to two-year-olds, for two to five-year-olds, no more than one hour a day. And again, screen time constitutes, you know, televisions, touch screens, gaming consoles, laptops, desktop computers, the whole gamut. Yeah. Um, for five to 18-year-olds, the recommendation is for no more than two hours a day. Now that is considered sedentary leisure screen time. So it doesn't encompass what they're doing in a classroom on devices. It is purely what is done for leisure-based and sedentary-based screen time. However, because I often share that when I run parent seminars and I can almost hear the collective gasp from the audience or the, the heads go down from parents. And so, yes, they are guidelines or recommendations, but again, I want to remind people that obsessing or focusing on how much isn't the most important question. I think, again, we need to have broader conversations. We need to consider what. That's by far the more important question. You know, your child could adhere to the two-hour limit a day, but is that two hours spent creating content or are they just consuming mindless YouTube clips? So really exploring the what, the when, as we've already exemplified times of the day. For kids in particular, before school can be problematic. And I'm not saying no screens before school. In an ideal world, that would be the case. But if your child's watching or playing rapid fire, fast paced action before school, it's really hard for them to go and sit in the classroom and listen to their teacher who's nowhere near as animated and isn't giving them hits of dopamine and isn't giving them praise and rewards. So timing of the day makes a big impact. 
Also how, you know, as you touched on before, we're seeing huge rates of myopia, which is nearsightedness, noise-induced hearing loss because of incorrect headphone use, musculoskeletal issues like technique because kids are often using devices hunched over with inappropriate postures, as are we as adults. So again, we do have limits, but I suggest the formula that I recommend to parents is I borrow Stephen Covey, who I'm sure you're familiar with, his life jar analogy and says, in your life, you need to put your most important rocks or marbles um, in the jar first. And so as a researcher, I looked at the neuroscience and developmental psychology And the research tells us very clearly what are the pillars or the rocks that are essential for optimal well-being and learning and development. And children need those six basic things. They need relationships, they need language, they need sleep, they need play, physical movement and good quality nutrition. So they're really important things. So we need to make sure that those fundamental physical and psychological needs go in the jar first. Then there'll be some white space around each of those rocks or marbles in the jar. We can fill that white space up with screen time and we don't have to have this moral panic that technology is damaging kids or harming mental health and wellbeing because their most important priorities have been met first. But what's happening in most Australian and international families is that that glass jar, which represents our life, is being filled up with screen time. And all of a sudden, we're seeing a decline in, I think, did I mention sleep? I think I mentioned sleep before. That's one of the needs. Good. Um, That we're seeing, you know, a decline in sleep. We're seeing obesity rates increase. Language change. Teachers in primary school seeing a decline in children entering school with expressive and receptive language skills. So there's a cascading set of consequences if kids aren't getting enough time with their most important needs and priorities being met. So I say to parents, use that analogy and that glass jar works really well because kids have different guidelines. Now we do have really consistent science with how much sleep children need and how much physical activity they need. And at the moment for primary school children, it's one hour a day of physical activity and for their sleep, 10 to 12 hours a day. Now, if you're doing your calculations, if you've got a primary school student, let's say you've got the 12-hour sleeper and the one hour of physical activity, that's always 13 hours of their day just on two of their needs. Yeah. doesn't leave a whole lot of time for screen time when we start to factor in some of their other needs. So it's a simple framework or a simple calculation, and it stops us from just trying to use some arbitrary metric. Those guidelines that I mentioned at the beginning have never been empirically validated. So there's never been any research done to say, you know, that one hour limit is exactly a safe amount. All kids, you know, have different tipping points. So it's really hard to prescribe an exact amount based on that. I love that because it's about priorities rather than some arbitrary time. And if you fill their day with, like you said, those six things, especially sleep and movement, then you don't feel so guilty about the white space in between because if they're getting enough dose of that and hopefully with movement it also includes sunshine because there's a lot of research which shows the importance of sunshine on gut health the importance of sunshine on mood with the importance of sunshine on melatonin production for sleep at night so I absolutely love that approach, Christy. That's Can I add one there? Because I'm glad you've brought up sunshine. And as it fits in with my philosophy of the basics work, if you were at the basics, there's a new study that's been conducted in Australia that says one of the reasons that we might be seeing this surge in myopia, possibly, is because a lot of young people aren't getting a sufficient amount of time in natural sunlight because yeah. they're inside on devices. 
that natural sunlight is believed to stop the onset of myopia. So literally getting outside, I call it green time after screen time, but getting time out in nature can really help to reduce the chances of that myopia setting in. So there are so many positive benefits. And as I said, you know, we've got these ancient brains that haven't evolved to cope with this digital world. So we need to go back to what does science tell us unequivocally that our kids and our teenagers need? And they're those basic things. My concern, and this is one of the things that's often misrepresented, particularly in the media, is that we often blame smartphones and social media for the decline in young people's mental health. We're told that rates of suicide, self-harm really began to spike when these technologies were introduced. And yes, the research tells us there's a correlation, but we have no research at this point in time that proves causation. And I think the Christie hypothesis at this stage from the evidence that we've got, I think that the reason we've seen this correlation is because of the displacement effect that screens are having. You talked about how we're not getting, when you don't get enough sleep, it affects your mood, it affects your performance. And it has that sort of vicious cycle that we often get caught up in. Yeah, for me, sleep is probably the most critical superpower, if you like. (laughs) I prioritise sleep ahead of exercise and diet. I mean, a lot of people are obsessed with what they're putting in, what they're eating. They're obsessed with exercise, but sleep is absolutely phenomenal for my research of Dr. Matthew Walker's work uh, on this uh, subject. And for me, that was a game changer when I started respecting sleep and getting more sleep. I feel like I'm actually faster, you know, and sharper than I was 20 years ago. Wow. Yeah. So the points you make about the relationship between sleep and screen time is so important. And I love the green time (laughs) (laughs) Uh, uh, because there's also research that shows that the color green on the eyes in nature, you know, looking at trees, grass, Mm -hmm. reduces blood pressure, takes you out of your sympathetic into the parasympathetic the rest and digest mode. So I try and tell my friends and family to go for a walk before you have the evening meal, just to relax and go out in nature. You know, I'm lucky enough to live near the Karingai Chase National Park, so I just go into the bush for that. So this is obviously a new area for parenting. You know, parenting has been pretty much the same over hundreds of years. And in the last 10 years, with the digital just exploding, it's been a challenge, hasn't it? I mean, (laughs) and it's come at a time where parents also are even busier at work. Both parents are working and the kids are being raised by television or their phone or social media. So how has parenting changed in the last 10 years, apart from what I've just mentioned? You know, just to give uh, parents that sense of they're not alone. (laughs) They're not alone. I have three of my own children and I experience many of the issues parents do. You know, my kids are throwing techno tantrums and I understand the angst we often feel as parents. I think the biggest thing is the rate of change. When the internet was first released in the digital world, we have something that's called the penetration rate. And the penetration rate describes how many years it takes any technology to penetrate to 50 million worldwide users. So when we had dial-up internet, you know, the do 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 that took 13 years to hit penetration rate. Right. YouTube, four years. Facebook took two years. Angry Birds took 35 days. I don't know, Sam, if you remember Pokemon oh. Go recently. Yeah. It took one to two days. 
And so this is where parents say, I, I can't keep up. And so many parents for the first time in history feel like they're on the back foot. They feel like the parenting dynamic has shifted because their children, their, their screenagers know more about a topic than what they do. And for many parents, this you know rapid rate of change has meant that many parents are taking the back seat. So my core message whenever I speak to parents, be that of primary school students or secondary students, is that parents need to be the pilot, not the passenger of the digital plane. And as the pilot of the digital plane, they've got to come up with three Bs. The first one is those boundaries. Come up with boundaries with your child or teen around what, when, where, how, with whom and how long they spend online. Second B is for us to really protect their basic needs. We have to make sure that they're getting sufficient sleep, movement, play, time outside, real relationships with real people. And the third B is boredom. We've lost the art of boredom. Kids today say, I'm bored, and they're placated with a screen. They experience big emotions like disappointment or anger or frustration, and they're self-soothing with a screen. So I think that's really important for parents to feel like they do have some control. And what I explain to parents, the reason that you must, even if you're the most technically inept person that has ever walked the face of the earth, you've got two things that your child or teenager just does not have. The first thing that you've got is a fully developed prefrontal cortex. So the part of the brain that helps make good decisions, that solves problems, it's really key part in this digital landscape is it's the impulse control center of the brain. It's the part of the brain that says that's a really inappropriate photo for me to post online. That's the part of the brain that I need to be working to say, look, four hours on Fortnite is sufficient. Turn it off, Jimmy. That part of the brain isn't fully developed until early 20s for females and late 20s for males. So you should not, as a parent, expect your child or your teenager to self-regulate on a digital platform. They just literally do not have the brain capacity to do that. And this is why they are posting inappropriate things. I often talk to students about their digital DNA and this idea that every photo, every message, every video is leaving behind sprinklings of your, some people call it a footprint, but I think we should think about our digital DNA. So you mightn't have that technical prowess. You've got that prefrontal cortex that you'll help your child navigate this digital space. The second thing that we've got as adults is life experience. We've got hindsight. We've got a catastrophe scale. Our young people, given their nature and their life experience, just don't have that. And so you don't have to be technically proficient. It can help. And there are some prohibitive tools that you can put in place to limit your child. The most important thing you can do is assume that active role, be that pilot, because you are equipped. You've got that prefrontal cortex and you've got the life experience so you can help them navigate this digital terrain safely, respectfully and responsibly, which is, I think, what we all want as parents. Wow, absolutely. There's so many takeaways from the <laughs> interview, Christy. That's phenomenal. One last question that I have, and you've given so much of your time generously. Is there a difference in the challenge for parents between, say, the different age groups? A lot of people talk about the preteen years as the most important. Would you agree with that? Look, I don't think they're the most, I think active parental involvement at all ages and stages is really important. This is not, you know, the sex ed conversation that you awkwardly have with your child and then tick the box and say, phew, I've had the sort of cyber safety talk, I'm done. Because there are different challenges at different ages. You know, the issues that parents of toddlers are dealing with, you know, some of the addictive behaviours that the really pronounced techno tantrums and um, when you turn off technology can sometimes represent in the teen years. There are definitely different challenges at each 
each stage. And so that's why I encourage parents, the earlier you can be the pilot of the digital plane, the better results you'll yield because it's really hard to go and make significant changes to your 16-year-old's digital behaviours when they've got a device that's in their bedroom, when it's their tool to connect with their friends, when they tell you they're doing their homework on it, much easier to do it when they're six or even earlier. So I think there are definitely unique challenges at each stage and age. I, I guess if you, I was to answer that question, I think parents of preteens are probably facing the biggest challenges at the moment because what we're seeing is younger and younger introduction of social media and multiplayer video games and social platforms, you know, even YouTube and YouTube kids. And so many parents are grappling with when is the right time to introduce social media or even a smartphone. We know that smartphone ownership is dropping. Um, the age of first introduction is dropping significantly. So yeah, I guess preteen parents are probably facing the greatest number of digital dilemmas at the moment. Okay, so because that was my next question was, is, is it a good solution just not to buy them the smartphone, the tablet or the laptop? Is, is that, I mean, I have a saying when it comes to the food, you can't eat what you don't buy right? <laughs> Look, I'm going to say my theory on this is delay dunking your child in the digital stream, whether that's introducing the TV or whether that's giving them a smartphone or giving them access to social media for as long as you can. You know, I think we've forgotten as parents, it's okay. In fact, I think it's a rite of passage for our kids to say to us, you suck, you're the worst parent in the world. And I hate you when you've put firm boundaries in place that you know will look after their well-being. I often use the analogy in parent workshops. If your eight-year-old son came home from school one day and said, can I have the keys to the car, dad? I'd like to go and do burnouts. We wouldn't give him the keys to the car. We would, you know, it would be just a firm no. Your daughter who's 11 comes home and says, how about a shot of tequila with dinner tonight? There's no way in the world we would enable that. That's so right. I said, say to parents, it is okay to have firm boundaries. Certainly communicate them to your children. I have found giving kids reasons and science for our decisions rather than just it's a hard no because I'm your mum or your dad and I said so. I'm yet to meet Sam, a parent who says to me, oh, gosh, Christy, I, you know, I really held off giving my son or daughter a phone and I really regret that decision. But I certainly hear plenty of parents saying the opposite thing where I gave it to them and it just became such a slippery slope. So delay the dunking if you can. Yes, I, I suspect that would be the case. <laughs> yeah, I mean, my children in their late teens now and older, so I didn't suffer the same challenges that other parents that I meet now who have said the same thing. They said, oh, I just wish I did not buy that iPad, especially for when they're children and then the phone when they're preteens. And I think that's the best solution sometimes. And I like what you said about if your kids don't tell you that you suck and they hate you, you know, that means you're, <laughs> means you're doing a good job of protecting them because... Yeah, there's a lot of magnetic pull out there in the wrong direction. And at the end of the day, you're not their friend, you know, you're their guardian. Mm -hmm. And uh, you need to guard them. You need to guard them against the tequila, against you know, <laughs> chucking burnouts up and down the street. And this is why I love reminding people of the dangers uh, and the benefits. Of course, we started with the benefits because people are just still uncertain they're still uncertain about, is it really that damaging? You know, I heard it's good, you know. And what you've outlined is what makes it good and what makes it bad. 
and you've done it beautifully and we've got so many key takeaways. I'm going to be listening to this again because <laughs> uh, there's some great one-liners there that just speak volume. So thank you so much, Christy. Is My there anything pleasure. else that we should know about before? No. I'm, going get, I'm going to get your book. It's, <laughs> it's on, on your website. It yeah. is, and still, I think, in some retailers as well. So, um, And I'm working on my, my next one, which is more for adults, on how we thrive in this digital landscape without and giving up our devices. And I'd love to, yeah, talk to you about that when the book is um, released because I, I want to delve deeper into the impact not just on children but on adults and, more importantly, on adult relationships. Mm. We've touched on it with various other podcasts. I've interviewed couples, therapists who are talking about how some couples are cheating on each other emotionally by having relationships on social media and those sorts of things. So really eager to find out about your next book. When will that be released? Still negotiating a date, so I'll keep okay. you posted. <laughs> Thank you again, uh, Chris. Lovely to chat, um, Sam. Yeah, absolutely. And it's very exciting for me to meet new friends and read their books because it's a conversation you have with the author. And I thank you so much for the conversation today. Oh, thank you. I enjoyed it. Thank you for asking such great questions. <laughs> <laughs> Until next time, everyone, live consciously.